as the wealthy oil tycoon lay on his deathbed, his pastor talked of God's healing power. Pastor, he gasped, if God heals me, then I'll give the church a million dollars. Well, miraculously, the man revived and within a few short weeks was out of the hospital. One day, several months later, he and the pastor chatted on the sidewalk in front of a hardware store. You know, the pastor said, when you were in the hospital dying, you promised to give the church a million dollars if you got well. Well, we haven't got it yet. Did I say that, the tycoon asked? I guess that goes to show how sick I really was. Now, what this story illustrates for us in a rather humorous way is how easy it is for us to, at to attempt to make a deal with God in order to get what we want from Him, only to fail to live up to our end of the bargain. What this wealthy oil tycoon did is what we often do or may be tempted to do when we find ourselves in an unpleasant situation in life and that's to make a rash vow. What do I mean by a rash vow? The definition of the word rash here in this context is displaying or proceeding from a lack of careful consideration of the possible consequences of an action. In other words, it's simply acting without due consideration or thought. The word vow is a solemn praise made to a deity by which the promiser pledges himself to some future act, course of action, or way of life. And so a rash vow is a solemn promise made to God without due consideration or thought. Clearly, rash vows are not the kind of vows God would like us to make. There are some vows that are good vows to be making, other vows not so much. Uh, this is evident in the book of Ecclesiastes, where it says in Ecclesiastes 5, verses 2 through 5, it says this, Do not be rash with your mouth, and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven, and you on earth. Therefore, let your words be few." For a dream comes through much activity, or through much worry, and a fool's voice is known by his many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. It is better not to vow than to vow and not pay. So clearly, rash vows are unwise. Yet that is exactly what Jephthah the character that we've been looking at for the last couple of weeks is going to do in the story we're going to look at today. But instead of offering a million dollars to God in return for healing, like the oil tycoon did, Jephthah is going to offer up something unthinkable. He's going to offer up a human being to God in order to get what he wants. The passage we're going to look at today is Judges chapter 11, verses 29 to 40. It's a difficult passage. It's one of the most difficult passages 
in the Bible to read for the obvious. Here Jephthah is going to make a rash vow and offer up a human being to God. And you say, my goodness, why would Jephthah do such a thing? Why would he make such a foolish decision, a foolish vow such as that? And that raises a question, why are rash vows so foolish to make? And why do we make such foolish vows? Jephthah's not the only one who makes rash vows. We all, perhaps, at one point in our life, have made a rash vow. Maybe you can recall a time in your life when you said something rashly to God, or you just made a vow to yourself. We all do them at some point. Most of us do anyway. Jephthah certainly did. And why did he make such a vow? And why was his vow so foolish? Why are these rash vows so foolish? Well, rash vows are foolish vows to make, number one, because they often spring from an urgent, desperate, and pressure-filled situation in life that is often focused on the self. Rash vows are often made or spring from an urgent, desperate, pressure-filled situation in life that is usually focused on the self. Let's take a look at verses 29 to 31. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and he passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he advanced toward the people of Ammon. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Now let's take a look at this vow. The vow is definitely focused on the self. He says, well, let's look at it this way. What is he asking? What's the vow? What is he promising God he's going to do? Or first of all, he wants, he's asking God for two things. What is he asking for? Number one, he's asking that God would deliver the Ammonites into his hand number one. And number two, he wants to make sure he returns home in peace. That is, I want to come home safely from battle. So those are the two things he's asking for. Deliver the Ammonites into my hand and make sure, Lord, that I come home in peace. Now, if you do those two things for me, this is what I will do for you. Whatever comes out of my house, I will dedicate to you. And the means by which I will dedicate it to you will be by a burnt offering. Now, there are many commentators and scholars who will say, well, what exactly was he offering? Did he intend it to be a human being or was he referring to an animal perhaps that may have resided in his house? For at that time, animals did live in people's houses. Perhaps not everyone's house, but there are uh, uh, historical evidence that suggests that animals 
did live in the houses of people's homes at that time. But they were, most, they were not dogs. Dogs did not have, uh, people back then did not keep dogs as pets. Okay? And one of the reasons why many people believe that he was intending a human being and not an animal was because human be, uh, animals were not typically uh, thought of as going out to meet someone who was victorious in battle. Jephthah was hoping he would return home uh, uh, victoriously from a battle and animals weren't typically ones who would go out to greet a victorious war hero uh, animals were most likely farm animals and they're not going to be coming out to, to greet you but people did and women were notorious for going out to meet war heroes uh, Miriam Moses's sister did it and so didn't David's daughter. When David came home from battle, his daughter would come out to greet him or his wife. It was known and it was common for women to go out with timbrels and dancing to meet war heroes. And Jephthah's character, and we know of his past, seems to indicate that Jephthah was uh, uh, intending to offer a human being, not an animal. Now, he may not have expected it to be his daughter, which is what will happen, but he most likely intended it to be some servant of some sort. And you, we get puzzled by this and say, why would Jephthah offer such, uh, such a, why would he offer a human being? Why would he do this? It, it's, it's a heinous act and we, it, it just, it's beyond our sensibilities. Well, first of all, they totally lived, they lived in a completely different culture than what we live in. Uh, and it was common in those days for people who worshipped other gods in that time period to offer up children to their gods. If you recall in Judges chapter 11 or 10 verses 6 to 16, the children of Israel worshipped many different gods. There were seven gods that were listed that the children of Israel had worshipped, two of which was Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites. And both of those gods were worshipped by their worshipers by means of child sacrifice. And so the children of Israel were worshipping these gods. And on occasion, they would do the same. And this is what Jephthah is doing. What he is doing is what we call synchristic or syncretism, which is the blending of different religions. What Jephthah is doing is taking a pagan way of worshiping a pagan god and worshiping Yahweh the Lord in that manner. That was forbidden, but Jephthah was so a part of his culture that he thought he was doing something good by offering up a person to show God Almighty how serious he was in his devotion to God by willing to offer up a person. He was showing God, I want to be victorious in battle so badly. I want to be the, continue to be the leader of the people of Gilead so badly that I'm willing to show you how serious I am. I'm willing to sacrifice a human being in order to do so. Meanwhile, in his ignorance, 
He was willing to do that which pagan deities or pagan people were willing to do to worship their gods. He is synchristic and he's simply behaving like a pagan. But he's worshiping God thinking that this is going to be pleasing to him. Now the whole point of this first uh, few verses is to show that the reason why he makes such a rash vow is because he's in a very uh, difficult, desperate pressure-filled situation, which is the root of the rash vow. Now think with me. Jephthah wants to be victorious in battle. If you remember, when we first opened up this, this, this story on Jephthah two weeks ago, one of the conditions that Jephthah had in order to be the leader of the Gileadite people was to defeat the Ammonites in battle. And now the battle is about to begin and Jephthah knows it. And he knows that if he loses this battle, not only could he lose his life, he could also lose his position as being a leader of the Gileadite people, which is what he covets. And so the position or the situation he finds himself in is an urgent, desperate, pressure-filled situation. And that is the root of the rash vow that he makes. Now, we often do the same thing when we find ourselves in a pressure-filled, urgent, desperate situation. We will be tempted to make rash vows to God. We make promises to him that we will do such and such if you, God, will do this for me. And we make a bargain and we try to make a deal with the almighty God. And rash vows are foolish because we never truly think about the implications of our words. And God takes our vows and our promises seriously. They're binding. Our words matter. So we see, we see here, I remember, in fact, one time, to give you an example of this, I was in a prison ministry uh, they, uh, back home in Massachusetts. It was uh, the prison ministry, uh, there was a couple in our church who led a prison ministry in a local prison. And then during one weekend, uh, during their six, every six months, they would have a weekend called, a, it was called a hootenanny, where people who weren't a part of the ministry could come in and see what God was doing in the lives of those who were in prisons and how God was changing them. And I went to one of these hootenannies and they would have different speakers come up and give testimony of what God was doing in their life or what God had done in their life. And one man uh, got up to speak and he spoke about his infant son. His infant son was sick and was on the verge of death. And this man was under the gun. He was felt the pressure. He didn't want his son to die. And he was in a very, very difficult, urgent, desperate, pressure-filled situation. And in that situation, he made a promise to God. He said, God, if you will do such and such, if you will save my child and not allow my child to die, I will do X, Y, and Z. I don't remember exactly what he, the vow was. And if I did, I wouldn't, I wouldn't share it. But the point is, is that we often find ourselves in, 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 in situations of life where we are desperate and it is out of those situations where, where rash vows spring. And that is unwise when we make such vows in, in such situations. And that's why they're foolish. 
Rash vows are foolish because they will spring from an urgent, desperate, pressure-filled situation in life that is often focused on the self. And Jephthah's vow was focused on the self. If you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's, and I, I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So we see that rash vows are foolish because they often come and are born out and originate from a difficult, difficult situation. Number two, rash vows are foolish vows to make because they will often lead to personal heartache and regret. Rash vows that we make are foolish because they will often lead to personal heartache and regret. Verses 32 to 35. So Jephthah advanced toward the people of Ammon to fight against them. And the Lord delivered them into his hands. And the Lord defeated them from Aor as far as Mineth, 20 cities, to Abel, Karamim, with a very great slaughter. Thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. Notice, they were subdued before the children of Israel, not before Jephthah. Continuing, when Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, behold, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing, and she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter, and it came to pass when he saw her that he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. Jephthah's vow was foolish because it led to personal heartache and regret, and that's exactly what happened here. He made his initial vow because of the pressure and the circumstances that he found himself in. And once, and he said, the vow, and he said in his vow, whatever comes out of my house will be yours. It may have never dawned on him that the only daughter that he had would be the first one to meet him. He never considered it. Or if he did, he maybe didn't care but I don't think that's the case. His emotion and his shock that his daughter comes out to meet him, his response is to tear his clothes, which is clearly an indication of grief and mourning. That was the way they would express it at that time. And notice in his grief, he's still selfish. Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot go back on it. It's almost as if he's blaming her for this whole ordeal, as if to say, why did you have to come out of the house? If you just simply stayed in the house, we would, I wouldn't be in this situation, never really looking at his own responsibility with his own rash words. But the point is, is that foolish vows are foolish because they lead to personal heartache and regret. You know, I think of many uh, men, husbands, who often, uh, because of their own desire 
to pursue their own uh, career, to fulfill their own personal goals or ambitions, they either make a vow to God or they make a vow to themselves. They vow that I will make it to the top of my profession and I will do whatever I have to do to get there. And oftentimes, they will sacrifice the time that is spent with their wife and with their children and their families to pursue that goal. And then those who do so, when they make it to the top, if they're fortunate enough to make it to the top and they reach their goals, they look back at their life and they look back with sorrow and regret because they didn't spend time enough time with their family and with their children when they were growing up. That is true. Jephthah was a very selfish individual. And it is often selfishness that keeps us from experiencing the precious gifts that God has given to us in this life, in the relationships that we have and the, the, the children that God chooses to bless us with. Oftentimes we place them on the altar for our, uh, and, and sacrifice them in terms of our times being willing to spend with them because we want to pursue our own agenda. And as a result, we look back on it and it leads to personal heartache and regret. That is true. Thirdly, rash vows are foolish vows to make because they often lead to disappointment and bitterness in the lives of others. Verses 36 to 38. So she said to him, my father... If you have given your word to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, because the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the people of Ammon. Then she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months that I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity, my friends and I. So she said, go. And he sent her away for two months. And she went with her friends and bewailed her virginity on the mountains. Here we see that his rash words not only brought personal heartache and regret to him, but it also led to disappointment, sorrow, and bitterness in the lives of other people. Not only in his daughter who did not want to be around him for two months. Let me be away from you because you hurt me but also the individuals who were with her were affected because of his words. Her friends were mourning and were accompanying her during her time of sorrow. She was never, as a result of, she realizes that she's going to have to be sacrificed, which is amazing to me. We can't understand why she would allow her father to do this to her. Well, she apparently believes that the reason why she, that her father was victorious in battle was because of God. She believed that God was the one who granted uh, her father the victory. And so because they understood the principle that vows were binding and they must be kept at all costs, she did not want her father to be cursed as a result of breaking his vow. So she was willing to submit to her father's wishes and carry out the will, uh, the, 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 the father's vow. It's incomprehensible for us to think that way. But yet she was willing to do that. And because of that, she was 
going to sacrifice the joy of being in marital relationship. She was going to sacrifice the joy of, of, of children and offspring. And it brought great pain in her own life. And that's often true as well when we make rash vows or we make decisions rashly without any thinking. It often will bring about disappointment and bitterness in the lives of those around us. It is true that when we, when we manifest like Jephthah did, the win-at-all-cost attitude, those closest to us are frequently the ones who are unnecessarily and illegitimately and deeply hurt. Blind ambition that attempts to use God for one's own purposes will always bring disaster. Jephthah, again, is doing this selfishly, all for his own purposes. And the fallout of this, of his words, uh, are catastrophic, to say the least. Fourthly, we see that children who are sacrificed as a result of the selfish ambition of others should be honored by keeping their memory alive. Verses 39 and 40. And it was, it was so, at the end of two months, that she returned to her father, and he carried out his vow with her, which he had vowed. She knew no man. And it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went out four days each year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. Here we see uh, that Jephthah actually carried out his vow and he sacrificed his daughter. Some have tried to uh, alter and soften what has happened here by saying that Jephthah did not actually sacrifice his daughter. What he did do was sacrifice her in a figurative sense by offering her to God uh, uh, in, a, in, in that he offered her uh, perpetual virginity. She never got married. She never knew a man. And so in that way, she sacrificed her life in that sense. And, and that is how people sometimes try to avoid the fact that Jephthah sacrificed his daughter. Uh, the author, it is, no, it is interesting to note that when he says this in verse 39, he says, and it was so at the end of two months that she returned to her father and he carried out his vow with her, which he had vowed. She knew no man. The author here is trying to very quickly uh, go through the act that Jephthah had carried out. He doesn't go into detail, unlike the book of Genesis, where God tells Abraham to offer up his son Isaac. The, uh, that story is very detailed and it's slow, where in this case, it's not God initiated. It is Jephthah, human initiated, and the author is appalled by what, he, what Jephthah is doing, and he softens it and just brushes right by it. doesn't want to go into detail. And the, the point here is that the woman was sacrificed. She gave up her life to fulfill her father's vow. And as a result, the community of which she was a part honored her by keeping her memory alive. 
They would go out every single, well, every single, they would go out four times a year to keep her memory alive. And one, you know, this is, this was very important in those days that uh, in the Old Testament perspective, uh, it was uh, understandable that, or it was thought that a parent's life was lived on and their name was honored through the lives of their children. And he had her as his only daughter. So the fact that she is now sacrificed, he's basically undermined his own future inheritance and hope. His own memory and name has been wiped out through this sacrifice. And so was hers. But the community of what she was a part of understood that. And they wanted to keep her memory alive because she was honorable in what she was doing and willing to be sacrificed in order to maintain what she thought was a God-honoring vow. The fact that the community was willing to do this shows that they were willing to keep the memory of one who was sacrificed alive. And that is true today. You know, we are living in a society where um, our culture is, just, is, is, is steeped or characterized by those who have their own selfish desires and have their own plans for life. They have their own agenda and their own ambition. And oftentimes, children are sacrificed as a result. And in this passage here, we just, I'll just say that children who are sacrificed as a result of selfish ambition of others should be honored by keeping their memory alive. This is a very difficult passage, and it was a, a passage where Jephthah is not seen in a positive light. He is a person who is a manipulator and is willing to do or say anything to get what he wants. Now, there are two things I want to point out here that we learn about God in this passage that I want us to, 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 to understand and to remember. Number one is that the story of Jephthah's rash vow reveals that God will not be manipulated. All attempts to manipulate God will fail. All attempts to manipulate God will fail. It is interesting to note that if you recall, two weeks ago, we saw that the children of Israel were worshiping all of these deities. And as a result of worshiping God, uh, these, these pagan gods, the God of Israel, the one true God, got mad. And he says, I am not going to, uh, I'm not going to help you anymore. Because when, when God saw that these Israelites were worshiping other gods, he got angry and he handed them over to the Ammonites and the Ammonites oppressed them. And as a result of their being oppressed, they cried out to God for deliverance. And what did God say? I'm not going to help you anymore. Okay. Because every time I help you, 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 you go running back to worshiping those other gods. And God understood that he was being manipulated by the people. And he wasn't going to be manipulated by the nation. Here in this case, what we see in Jephthah's life is simply a microcosm of what Israelite society had become at large. He is trying to manipulate God to get what he wants, thinking that he can bargain with God. 
And what Jephthah is simply is a reflection of what society is at large. And God wants the society to see what they have become by looking at one of their leaders. And he's teaching us that we as a society or as individuals will never, ever, ever be able to manipulate God through our bargaining agreements or our attempts to bargain. Jephthah was a negotiator. He negotiated. We saw that he, uh, the children of Israel negotiated with God. And then we saw with Jephthah's personal life, Jephthah negotiated with the Gileadite leaders and he won. He ended up getting to be a leader in Gilead. Then we saw last week he negotiated with the king of Ammon, but he failed. Here we see that he tries to negotiate with God and God doesn't even answer him. He says nothing. All of this is simply to say that Israelite society was so bad that its leaders were willing to bargain with God. They were synchristic. Their ideas and concepts were God, uh, of God were born out of the culture from which it sprung, from which he sprung, and he tried to manipulate God and it'll never happen. And the same is true today. And secondly, I want to point out is that the story of Jephthah's rash vow revealed that God could use any person, including unfit leaders who attempt to manipulate him, to accomplish his purpose. It is interesting, at the very beginning of the story, it says that the Spirit of God came upon Jephthah. Isn't that interesting? The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. And when that happened, he passed through Gilead, he passed through Manasseh, he passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and then he advanced toward the people of Ammon. The purpose of the Spirit of God falling upon Jephthah here is to show that God was going to accomplish victory through Jephthah in spite of Jephthah. God's Spirit... uh, And God gave victory to Jephthah, not because Jephthah made a vow and made a bargain with God. God had determined that he was going to deliver the people of Israel before Jephthah made his vow. The fact that Jephthah received his spirit is clearly indicated that in that he went out and he went to these other places in Israel, in Mizpah and Manasseh, to recruit troops, which is what normally they did in the book of Judges. And... As soon as Jephthah did that, that's when he makes his vow. But here we see that God was predetermined to to deliver the people of Israel in spite of Jephthah. Even though Jephthah had God's spirit did not mean that he was a spirit-filled person. The fact that the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah does not presuppose any particular level of spirituality on the part of Jephthah. It affirms God's involvement in empowerment, but does not guarantee the person's spirituality. For example, in Numbers chapter 24, verse 2, the Spirit of God came upon Balaam. And if you recall, Balaam was the person hired by Balak, who was the king of Moab, to curse the children of Israel. But he ended up blessing them instead. But the Spirit of God still fell upon Balaam. Also in Judges chapter 6, verse 34, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. And soon after Gideon received the spirit, he asked God for a sign that God will do what he said he would do in saving the Israelites by his own hand. In the case of Balaam, the spirit of God came upon an enemy of God and his people. In the case of Gideon, the spirit of God came upon a person who was lacking faith in what God had already made clear to him, that God would save Israel through Gideon's hands. 
This lack of faith was demonstrated by Gideon's request of a sign through a fleece. In both cases, the Spirit of God came upon individuals who were not the best examples of godly piety before the Spirit came upon them. The, spirit, the same is true with Jephthah. Jephthah has not demonstrated godly character before the Spirit of God fell upon him, nor does he do so afterwards. Then why does the Spirit fall upon him? The Spirit fell upon Jephthah, it seems, to graphically describe God's arresting of men ill-disposed toward resolving Israel's problems and equipping them for the saving task. So God is simply coming upon Jephthah to accomplish his purpose in spite of Jephthah. It is not because of the vow, which this tells me and tells all of us that God can still use leaders who are in positions of office in spite of their ungodly character, in spite of their being unfit to lead, God could still use those individuals to accomplish his purposes. And that's a good thing. That is a good thing. It's a difficult passage, this passage, and it's complex. There's a lot going on. But we learn in this passage that in spite of the rash vows that we make, in spite of the ungodly leaders that may rule or reign over us, God is still in control. We cannot manipulate him and he can still use people who are our leaders to accomplish his purposes in spite of them. And we're thankful for that. We're thankful for that because God is in control. And for that, we give him praise and thanks. Uh, please, praise with, please pray with me. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we know, Lord, that there are difficult passages uh, in this word. And... Uh, this is one of them. Uh, the sacrifice that Jephthah offered was a foolish sacrifice that was born out of a difficult situation that led to personal heartache and pain, not only for himself and for others. And Lord, we just pray that you would give us wisdom and faith not to do such things when we find ourselves in such similar situations. Help us to trust in you that no matter what happens and what goes on in our lives, that you're in control of them. And you're going to do what you're going to do. And just help us to simply trust you as we walk through the difficulties, uh, the highs and lows in life that we make. And keep us from opening up our mouths too rashly. From saying something that we would regret that would cause us to be hurt or to hurt others in the future. We're thankful, Lord, that you are going to be at work in our lives and that you are at work in the lives of our leaders and you can do so regardless of they're godly or not. And we just so thank you for your, your, your faithfulness towards us. For when the Israelites were unfaithful to you, you remained faithful. And when we were unfaithful to you, you remained faithful. And for this, we give you all, all the glory and honor and the praise that you alone deserve. And we give you praise and thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Our closing uh, song... Uh, this morning is Your Grace is Enough.